It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. It's podcast number 180 for February 14th, 2010, recorded on February 11th, the day before the big day. The day before the big day? What did he mean by that? Well, I'll tell you, but you'll have to wait a little bit. Let's start with this. How can you be in two places at once when you're not anywhere at all? That was the name of a comedy album released by Firesign Theater sometime in the 1960s. It has nothing to do with Log Me In, which is what I'm going to be telling you about, but I've always liked the name of the album. Log Me In is the solution to the problem of leaving an important file you want to work on at home on your office computer. Or the inverse problem, leaving an office file you worked on at home on your home computer when you go back to the office. With Log Me In, you just work on the file using the computer it's on, even if you're not there. Although Log Me In offers a professional version that has an annual subscription fee, the free version is enough for most uses. Log Me In also offers some highly sophisticated support tools such as Log Me In Rescue for companies that need to be able to connect to their customers' computers, and that is a very high-priced offering. At least it sounds high-priced until you actually use it and you realize just how much value you and your customers get out of it. The free version of LogMeIn doesn't offer the ability to transfer files from one computer to the other, but if you have access to an FTP server, you can park your files there to move them around. Security note, though, if you're working on proprietary information from your office, make sure that the FTP site you use is secure. Loading an important file to a publicly accessible server will probably not be viewed as the best possible career move. To use LogMeIn, all you have to do is install the application, make sure it's running on the computer that you want to connect to. In the process of setting this up, you'll create a password-protected account at LogMeIn. This account gives you access to all of the computers that you have defined and that are currently turned on and running LogMeIn. You can use just about any browser. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see some screenshots of a session. I started by connecting to the LogMeIn site, and Norton Internet Security popped up, asked for my master password. Norton Internet Security stores my passwords in an encrypted file and provides them as needed. So I used Norton Internet Security to log in to LogMeIn. Once you do that, the LogMeIn account screen shows all of your available computers. In this case, there was just one that was powered. It's the computer at the office. At this point, I had authenticated my identity with LogMeIn, but I still needed to be authenticated by the computer that I want to connect to. In this case, I need to provide my username, a domain name, and my password for that computer on that domain. I did that, and having proved to the office computer who I am, I was now given the opportunity to remote control that computer. Initially, the screen will open in a reduced size view. After logging on to the remote system, you can set the screen to display full size. And if you have monitors that happen to be the same resolution in both locations, everything will fit perfectly. If the resolutions aren't identical, then the view will be degraded slightly. You'll have to scroll, perhaps left to right or up and down. LogMeIn also allows you to suppress the wallpaper on the computer that you connect to. That speeds the session. Actually, it speeds it up quite a bit. And for security reasons, you can have the remote computer, the one you're connected to, blank the screen anytime you're connected to it. 
That way someone can't walk past your desk and watch what you're doing. And at the end of the session, you can lock the terminal or log off. And depending on how your remote computer is set up, you can even reboot the computer without being in the same room with it. The only situation in which you won't be able to do this is if you have an application such as TrueCrypt installed in a way that encrypts the entire hard drive and requires a boot time password to unencrypt the disk and allow Windows to boot. That's the situation in my office, so I cannot reboot the computer from home. Bottom line for LogMeIn, it lets you work from where you are. Five cats, it's a powerful free version of an even more powerful paid version. The free version is probably all you'll need, but you can test drive the paid version for a month if you'd like to compare. For more information, check the LogMeIn website. You'll find a link to that site from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. So what's this big deal about what I'm doing tomorrow? Why is it a big day? Well, I am moving to Windows 7, 64-bit, on Friday, the 12th of February. So by the time you hear this, my primary desktop computer should be running the 64-bit version of Windows 7. I started writing this article on Monday, February 8th, and tomorrow, or from your perspective, last week, I'll go to TCR and find a computer with Windows 7 installed. We'll then move the three disks from the current computer to the new box, and I'll spend some time setting things up and testing. By the time I come home on Friday, or came home on Friday, from your perspective, I should have a fully functional computer again. But just to be on the safe side, I'm recording this podcast on Thursday. Although the desktop computer is a solid performer, and has been for nearly four years, it runs so many applications that it's encountering what I think may be some 32-bit limitations. For one thing, the computer has only 2 gigabytes of RAM, and I still think only and 2 gigabytes in RAM do not belong in the same sentence, but let us continue. A 32-bit system could support a little over 3 gigabytes, and that would make a difference, but when I move to 64 bits, the computer will have 8 gigabytes of RAM installed, and that's just the beginning. It can go way beyond that. In addition to that, it will effectively have four processors that, through the magic of hyper-threading, will be able to look like eight in some circumstances. The current computer is a dual-core system. So I'm quadrupling the memory. I am doubling or quadrupling the number of CPUs. The CPU will run at a significantly higher clock rate. The computer's word size will have doubled from 32 bits to 64 And both the operating systems and some of the applications I use have been optimized for 64-bit processors. So it seems reasonable to assume that the new computer will be noticeably faster than the existing machine. But I won't know that until I've been able to test it. So I'll let you know next week. You may wonder what I mean by encountering some 32-bit limitations. What I mean is that the computer often has a lot of tasks running, and because this computer has a lot of disk space, something always seems to be indexing, examining, or backing up a large chunk of one disk or another. At the time I wrote this account, for example, the following programs were all open. The Bat, my email program. Firefox, with 10 sites open and 28 active add-ins. Opera, with 4 sites open. Dreamweaver, Outlook for my office email. Excel, UltraEdit, Snagit, Groove, OneNote, and an IM conversation using Digsby. In the background, Norton Internet Security, Unlocker, KeePass, Huey, LogMeIn Server Mode, Flix, MacroExpress Pro, Google Calendar Sync, Always Sync, and Carbonite. In addition to these, Windows is running dozens of services, and this is a fairly light time. 
it's not uncommon for me to have all of those applications open and add FileZilla, iTunes, maybe synchronizing an iPod at the same time, Photoshop, Bridge, and possibly even a separate online log me in session with the office. So no wonder this poor little computer is feeling just a bit overwhelmed. I started communicating with Marshall Thompson at TCR a few weeks ago to determine what the options would be. One of the things I like about dealing with an independent system assembler such as TCR is that the system I bring home will be exactly the system I want, not just the closest system I could find of what I wanted. In this case, it's going to be an Intel i7 CPU with a new motherboard and a lot of RAM. I already mentioned that. It will also include two optical disks removed from the existing desktop system and three hard drives that are currently in this system. The plan is for me to show up on Friday morning and work with TCR technicians to move the hardware from one box to the other. While I'm there, I'll also install Linux. I found that TCR, somewhat surprisingly, doesn't do Linux. Once that's done, the folks at TCR will move the hardware, and then I'll start installing the software. You can think of this as kind of a controlled burn-in under the customer's supervision. Just try asking one of the big computer builders to allow you to help while they build your machine. Or even just to stick around and watch. Good luck with that. I know that not every feature of every application I have will work properly on a 64-bit system. I suspect that I'll encounter some hardware problems, too. This is a risk that I'm willing to take for two reasons. First, it's time to move to 64-bit computing. Processors have been available since the early 1990s. That technology is now nearly two decades old. It's about time. Second, Microsoft has produced several 64-bit versions of Windows. Even the much-maligned Vista performed acceptably on a 64-bit platform with a lot of memory. Third, yeah, I know I said two reasons. Third, someday operating systems and applications will no longer be available in 32-bit versions, just as 16-bit and 8-bit versions are no longer supported, at least in the mainstream. Fourth, although I do expect some problems, I also expect them to be relatively minor. And the fifth of my two reasons, Ubuntu is also available in a 64-bit version. I keep saying you should have more than one browser. If you do that, you might want to have some of the same shortcuts or favorites or bookmarks, depending on what your browser calls it, available on your other browsers. I don't because I use Firefox as my primary browser and I set up Opera, Chrome, or Internet Explorer for alternate uses. But if you'd like a bit of consistency from browser to browser or from Firefox on a desktop computer to IE on a notebook computer, Xmarks is what you're looking for. Originally called Foxmarks, Xmarks was established in 2006 by Mitch Caper. Sound like a familiar name? Caper is the Lotus 123 guy. He was the co-founder of Lotus Development Corporation with Jonathan Sachs in 1982. Caper later went on to found On Technology in 1990 to create On Location, a quick finder application for the Macintosh. To say that On Location didn't match the success of Lotus 123 would be a bit of an understatement. From 2001 through 2008, Caper was involved with the Open Source Applications Foundation, and that brings us up to 2006, which is when Foxmarks debuted as a Firefox add-on. The Xmarks bookmark synchronizer works with Firefox, Internet Explorer, Chrome, and Safari. Safari only on the Mac. You'll note I didn't mention Opera. Opera has its own built-in system to move cataloged URLs from one computer to another, but it would still be helpful if Xmarks worked with it. 
The application is one of the most popular Firefox add-ons. Since being repositioned as Xmarks in early 2009, the application has been downloaded about 15 million times. So what's supported? Well, Firefox, primarily. Firefox 3 on Windows XP, Vista, and Windows 7. On the Mac, OS X only, of course. And under Linux. Internet Explorer is supported, but versions 7 and 8 only on XP, Vista, and Windows 7. Safari is supported, but only on the Mac and only on OS X, 10.5 and above. And note that not all features are supported for all browsers. For security folks, Xmarks is kind of a split decision. Security-minded folks will like Xmarks provision to encrypt bookmarks while they are in transit between the browser and the Xmarks server, but they might not like the idea that the bookmarks actually reside on the Xmarks server. And, of course, users do not have access to other users' bookmarks. But if this concerns you, it is possible to set up Xmarks so that it will store your bookmarks on an FTP server or a WebDAV server. Xmarks can analyze your bookmarks to improve search queries, and the company says that the results of this analysis are published but without any personally identifiable information about the source. Because Xmarks is primarily a Firefox application, that's the environment in which I'm showing it to you. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see some screenshots. After downloading and installing Xmarks, you'll, of course, need to restart Firefox. You'll then have the opportunity to continue the setup process. You need to run the setup wizard. This is the process that sets up your online account and makes it possible to synchronize your bookmarks. And I have to say thank you to Xmarks. The setup wizard chooses the safer option when you're offered the opportunity to back up your passwords online. The safer option, of course, is no. And that's the one I selected. After you've set up Xmarks and you've saved a couple of sets of bookmarks, you'll be able to work with previous versions of the bookmarks. That's kind of handy. If you decide to save your passwords, you should consider doing so on a secure WebDAV or FTP server. And again, by secure server... I mean selecting a directory that is not in the root of a website. When you set up a website, you'll have a directory called public underscore HTML in most cases, or something like that. This is not where you want to store any critical information. Instead, you want to store that information outside the web root. Instead of using, for example, home slash public HTML slash very public directory, you'll want to create a directory above the web root, which would be a directory created right off the home directory. That's one that only you have access to with your password. The home directory is your top-level directory. That will have been established by your Internet presence provider. The bottom line for Xmarks, three cats, not outstanding, but certainly a solid performer, helps you keep track of your bookmarks. It's free. It always chooses the safer option during setup. You might wonder why only three cats. Well, the three cat rating is a good rating. It's an honest, solid application. It does what it says it'll do. If Xmarks supported Safari on Windows machines and Opera, it would earn at least four cats. If you need to synchronize your bookmarks, this is an excellent choice. For more information, check the Xmarks website. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, an explanation of why you are going to need really high-speed Internet service. Faster and better online streaming video is in your future, if only the United States can manage to provide the same kind of service that's enjoyed by the planet's other technological giants, countries like, oh, say, France, Norway, 
South Korea. Netflix is looking at what's required to bring high-definition video in 1080 size to its subscribers, and this is something that could happen within the next few years. This year, Netflix plans to start providing 5.1 audio, which is enhanced stereo sound, to online viewers. True streaming at 1080 will probably have to wait, but hopefully not for too long. Netflix is the champion when it comes to DVD distribution, but the company's leaders know that DVDs aren't the future. The future is real-time, on-demand, high-definition video. That means extra bandwidth, a lot of it. That means faster computers. That means we need what has been the standard for those countries like France, Norway, and South Korea, and a lot of other nations, for several years. Currently, Netflix streams high-definition content at 720. If you don't have a 5 megabits per second connection or faster, it just won't work. Doubling the resolution, which 1080 does, won't work on connections as slow as 5 megabits per second. For that kind of quality, you're going to need the speeds that you'd find in France. The common speed there, since about 2007, has been 28 megabits per second. And yes, that is almost eight times the speed of my premium service from WOW, for about $40 a month. And yes, that's about half what I pay. Some of the civilized countries have Internet connections exceeding 50 megabits per second. Why not the United States? Netflix uses Microsoft's Silverlight technology for its video streaming service, and Microsoft currently supports that 1080 streaming. It's likely that MSNBC will show off some 1080 streaming during the upcoming Winter Olympics. Watch for that. That'll really slow your computer down. Remember computer games? Electronic Arts, unarguably one of the largest players in the computer game marketplace, appears to be sliding into oblivion. The company says it lost $82 million in the most recent quarter. That's better than a year ago. Back then, EA lost $641 million. But a loss is a loss, even if it's a small loss. Stockholders are much happier when the company reports a profit. Electronic Arts has been around since 1982. The company's most popular current games are based on the Harry Potter franchise, but there are some older games based on Need for Speed, Medal of Honor, The Sims, and Battlefield. As late as 2008, the company enjoyed revenues of $4.2 billion. Problem was, the company lost $1.08 billion in that same period. Because the results were below expectations, Wall Street punished Electronic Arts, dropping the company's stock value considerably. The company is growing and shrinking simultaneously. In late 2009, EA announced that it was acquiring Playfish for $275 million, but announced on the same day that it was laying off 1,500 employees, about 20% of its workforce. What the future holds for EA? Anybody's guess. What the future holds for me? I hope. 64-bit computing. Details next week. Thanks for listening to Tech Fighter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.